Uh, my name is Jack, and in case I, I see a few faces I don't recognize, so good to have you here if you're new or visiting this morning. Um, I am honored to be Bethany Northeast lead pastor and um, to kind of get, get to continue in this series we've been in. John and Silas have um, just capably taught this last couple weeks, and I've really appreciated being part of this great team, so good to be with you. Um, We're in the fourth week of this series in the book of Job, and as we continue, just in case you haven't been with us the last three weeks, a little review, we've been looking at this ancient book of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom sort of alongside Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. That's how it's positioned in the Bible. And we're looking at it from these various angles. Um, All around the central idea or a question that you might have heard me talk about in the first week, which is this question, what does it mean to be human? So what we talked about in that week and have talked about the last couple weeks is that Job is teaching us this book that we may or may not have read in our entire lives about what it means to be created in God's image. And in being created in God's image, um, what it means to be finite. <laughs> we're not infinite. I don't think this is probably news to any of you. We're not limitless. We're not inexhaustible. We get tired. Um, we're limited. People who in our lives we've experienced loss and brokenness, just to put it in maybe a different frame, or weakness and failure, or people who get, like I said, tired. I think there's a lot of exhaustion right now. People who get discouraged. There's a lot of discouragement right now in our culture. People who, like Job, suffer. We suffer. And so Job is teaching us something about what that means and what it means to live in a world like that, to live lives in that context. And in living those lives, this is really key, how to live well. Um, Job's not a fatalistic book. I I mentioned it's in this um, section of Scripture called Wisdom Literature alongside Ecclesiastes, which begins Ecclesiastes 1-2. Remember this refrain, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Job is not fatalistic. It's not echoing that refrain so much. Instead, Job is inviting us to consider, like I said, what it means to be human, to be created in God's image. And what that means is we're loved by God. Though sinful, we're sought out by God, though we're lost, and we are healed by God, though we're broken. All those things are true. And so that's like in a nutshell what Job's all about. (laughs) Um, And so last week, John took us through a study on Job's friends. This is the bulk of the book, and that's a bunch of conversations between Job and three of his friends, and what that looks like to come alongside people who are in suffering, or maybe not. We get to see a little bit of how they don't offer the good comfort that God desires for us, or to companion the broken, you might say. Today, we're going to stay in that section of the book, but we're just, like I said earlier, going to take a little different angle on this section. We're in Job chapter 28, so you can have your Bibles open if you'd like. We're going to actually study this text that we read. And this is sort of a soliloquy um, in which Job is sort of, he's thinking out loud about everything that he and his friends have been talking about, all the stuff he's experienced to this point, And he's thinking about this question that he articulates in the text in verse 12, which is simply this question, where can wisdom be found? So we're kind of second layer of question today. So the first question being, what does it mean to be human? Drop down menu, where can wisdom be found in verse 12? That's the question we're going to wrestle with today. What is the source and the value and the purpose of wisdom in our lives? How do you cultivate wisdom? Like, what even is wisdom, and why does it even matter? (laughs) I'm worried about getting my kids dressed for school on Monday morning. Wisdom has nothing to do with that. 
We'll see. So we're going to get to that question. And to get to it, I first want to share a quick axiom and then a little illustration of the axiom. So first, the axiom. This was coined or articulated by the late sociobiologist E.O. Wilson that Silas actually uh, mentioned in his e-news to you, if you get the e-news, hopefully you do, earlier this week. Here's the axiom. We are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. We're drowning in information while at the same time starving for wisdom. There has arguably never been a time in in human history filled with greater access to information. Um, The best books ever written are available for free on, on Amazon if you have an Amazon Prime account or just a few dollars. Or if you prefer, you can just listen to the Audible version, you know, on your commute to work or while you're making dinner or whatever you do. You can now take a master class in any number of topics around in, in, in the realm of thought, cooking, acting, business, astrophysics, um, from experts all around the globe without ever leaving the comfort of your own couch. You can do that. Or if you want to up the bar a little bit, you can take courses at Harvard, MIT, Columbia, and Oxford, anywhere in the world right now, online. And if you don't have time for any of that, if you're pressed for time, just ask Google. So here's the illustration. The other day, I bought myself a brand new Google Nest smart speaker. I did that. (laughs) So I was over at Best Buy with Elliot. Uh, We were getting him a new school laptop. His earlier one had broken. And so, um, and I hadn't bought one of these speakers because I'm not exactly sure why, other than the fact that there's a sneaky suspicion in me that somebody's listening and I don't like it. I don't like that feeling (laughs) that somebody might be listening and it might be true. If you work at Google or Amazon, I'm sorry, but I think that's happening. But anyway, we're over there at Best Buy. Elliot needs a laptop, and there's this enchanting display of Google products, of course. We walk out with this brand-new laptop and a new smart speaker, and it's been really nice. Actually, it's primarily serving as a um, much more expensive music streaming device. We previously were just using my iPhone, um, but now we can just ask Google, hey, play Evening Jazz or play whoever. And we've also goofed around with a little bit. You, if you've, you, you all have these things probably, and so you can ask it things. I didn't know this, but you can ask it questions. Like, it'll tell you jokes if you ask it to make you laugh. It'll do that. Um, it'll give you the weather report. That's one of Elliot's favorite things to do. It'll even answer some of your most burning questions, like how does a car engine work? So if you've interacted with my son Elliot lately, he's really into cars. So we ask Google, and it turns out Google knows a thing or two about car engines. It'll explain dimensional analysis. So, you know, Maren had a chemistry final coming. Uh, she was thinking about it. I don't want to put words in her mouth. I was curious. So we asked Google to explain dimensional analysis. Knows a few things about that. We even asked Google to give us the meaning of life. Here's the answer that Google will give you, at least one of them, a quote. According to the late 20th century philosophers Bill and Ted, life's purpose is to be excellent to each other and to party on. But that's just two dudes' opinions, end quote. Yeah. So, remember, we're drowning in a sea of information, but we're starving for wisdom. We all know that you can't get the meaning of life from Google. You, you absolutely know that, that in fact, there isn't really an answer to that question, despite the many attempts by Bill and Ted and other people to answer it. Um, Google doesn't know who you should marry. Google doesn't know if you should sell your stuff, give, it, give the money to the poor, and move to Latin America or Africa or Asia. Google can't tell you which college to go to. Google, or what to do in a relationship that's off the rails. Google 
has no idea how to grieve well or how to pray. We just went through a time in prayer together. Google can't tell you how to do that. Google can't solve the climate crisis or bring about racial reconciliation. Google can't even give us meaning for the last two plus years of pandemic life. Google doesn't have answers to these questions, does it? We need wisdom, not more information. We're drowning in a sea of information and we're starving for wisdom. And I'm not necessarily discounting the ability of any or all of these technologies that we have in our homes or our pockets to give us information. Being able to quickly find out this week how to unlock my frozen car doors using Google was extremely helpful. It turns out all you need is hand sanitizer. Who knew? Ask me more later. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> what I am criticizing, though, is that the assumption that information is necessary or a necessary prerequisite to understanding is false. Just because I know how to unfreeze my car doors on a cold January morning doesn't mean I know how those locks work. It also doesn't mean I know if they're serving a purpose, if they're keeping prowlers out of my car in the middle of the night or not. Why lock your car doors? <laughs> we're living in a world, we're drowning information, but we're starving for wisdom. And wisdom, it can't be found in a book or by a smart speaker. It's not something you learn in a class, and it's certainly not something you can ask Google for. It has to be lived. It has to be experienced. Which is why I just love Job's question, where can wisdom be found? It's a profound question. It relates to so many areas of our lives. It's provocative. It's revealing of this desire to learn. Of, I love this about Job's story. He's patient with God and himself, his suffering. He has a hunger deep inside to understand. He wants to understand. He wants to learn from this experience that he's in the midst of. And so this morning, I just want to lean into that question with you and ask it. Where can wisdom be found? And at some level, um, see what God might say. Because we're hungry, I think if you're with me here, for understanding concerning any number of questions that we're each wrestling with or collectively wrestling with, the things that keep us up in the middle of the night, we find ourselves perplexed and bewildered and discouraged. And like I said, this is collective, this is individual. And I believe God doesn't just want to leave us drifting in this sea of information, endlessly lost, aimless. Instead, I think God wants to impart God's mind and heart and will to us and make us wise. And so let's ask, where can wisdom be found? And as we do, we're just going to break it down this way. Kind of help to frame the study. Three simple angles we'll look at this from. So we're going to talk about how wisdom is absolutely important, the importance of it, that you can only find it in God. It's only found in God. God alone is wise. And then um, that it nonetheless can be cultivated in our lives. There's a way in which you can develop wisdom. So the importance of wisdom, the source of wisdom, and a way to develop it. Okay. So first, the, the importance of wisdom. This is in verses 9 to 12 that we read first. Job says, verses 9 to 11, that we drill, we mine, we, we tunnel, and we're trying to find gold and silver and diamonds. This is a metaphor. But wisdom, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Okay? So he, he recognizes there, to use the metaphor, that it can't be bought with the finest gold. You can't buy wisdom. It can't be weighed with the price of silver. To use his words, it isn't found in verse 13. It isn't found in the land of the living. You can't find it. So this is a poem, and it's a poetic way of saying that as much as we work and put effort into finding all the things in life that we value, whether that's literal gold, silver, diamonds, whatever, or put it in frame of your lives, create a legacy for yourself. 
all the energy we put into crafting an image uh, or building financial equity and influence. Nothing, none of those things compares to the value of wisdom. Wisdom is invaluable, or to use the language of that old Visa commercial, it's priceless. You cannot buy it. Which is why in Proverbs 8, this is like another wisdom book. So you have Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job as a kind of compendium of wisdom books. Proverbs 8 says, Choose my instruction instead of silver. Choose knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Nothing. Nothing. And so wisdom, according to Scripture, is invaluable. It's utter, and it's utterly important in that respect to our lives. We absolutely need it. We can't live without it. Which kind of begs the question, why? Why is wisdom so important? You know, I have Google. <laughs> I can answer most, 90% of my questions. That seems pretty good. Um, and how might it be a help to Job? Or, or my, how might it be a help to you in suffering and pain and loss? Like, how is wisdom going to get you through those things? Well, if you noticed in this passage, wisdom is paired with another word. So in verse 12 again, and then in verse 20 and 28, this, and this word is understanding. So here's verse 12. Wisdom, where can it be found? Where's the place of understanding? So this isn't just mere repetition. These are two separate words in Hebrew. Um, one is chokmah, which is the Hebrew word for wisdom. The other is binyah, which is understanding. So binyah, it means insight, understanding how things work understanding how the doors, the locks on my door work. That's understanding, binya. Chokma, wisdom, is mastery. It's putting to use what you know so you can get things done. So binya, understanding how things work. Chokma, putting to use what you know so you can get things done. So here's wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge of facts, but wisdom is knowing what to do with the facts once you get them. It's knowing what to do once you understand how your car door locks work. <laughs> Uh, And so put this in terms of faith. Wisdom is not merely ethics or obedience to God's law. It's instead knowing what to do in the 90% of life situations where you don't know what to do, when there isn't an answer, where you don't have a hard and fast rule to follow. And it's true that ethics are important. I'm I'm not saying there are no ethics here. And of course, I think it's true that what, doing what God wants us to do is pretty important. Uh, the law of God is important. Jesus says this in Matthew five seventeen that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So that's true. But the reality is that God's law and Jesus as the fulfillment of that law and Christianity is structure for the law and the Bible is a book of the law. <laughs> None of these things are intended to be merely a code of ethics for us. These, this, this is not a rule book to govern or to referee our lives and the lives of others. Christianity is not a set of merely a set of presets and doctrines, that if we carefully follow these, they'll keep us from harm. Or if we're lucky, maybe someday get us into heaven. Christianity is not a bomb shelter to keep you safe from disappointment and suffering. Good Christians that I know have been depressed. Good Christians that I know and you know have died of cancer. And good Christians have lost faith in God. There are many, many situations in our lives in which we have to learn to navigate those based on our understanding where there's not a hard and fast rule to govern our decisions, where our knowledge of what to do next is at best vague, if not completely unknown, where the next move in life is, is beyond our grasp. We will never know what to do next. It's not going to come to you from your smart speaker, and you might not find it in your Bible. 
I love how Carol Newsom, who's a commentator and a scholar, has put this in her book on Job entitled A Contest of the Moral Imagination. She says this, that there is something of, of the nature of a quest in Job's speeches. He's tunneling, he's overturning obstacles, he's sinking shafts in the search for something that is not only more precious than gold, but beyond all of their values. So remember I said that wisdom is more precious than anything, and it's also beyond those values. It's invaluable. She goes on to say it like this, that the wisdom dialogue as a genre is itself something of an expose on the limits of human understanding, on the limits of the capacity to know, since it does not end listen to this, in a single solution or insight into the problem it addresses. There's not just one answer here for Job. And there may not be any answers at the end of the day. We're limited. We're finite, as I said in that first week. And in in realizing that, as we discover our humanity, that can be both a comfort (laughs) as well as a great discomfort. There's something discomforting at times about searching for wisdom. You remember the, the story of the rich young ruler in the Gospels, this, this man who comes to Jesus searching for wisdom. He asked Jesus, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? See, I've done it all. I've been a Christian my entire life. I have kept every one of the rules. I'm a model citizen. Um, and, but I have this really sneaky suspicion, Jesus, <laughs> that something is still missing so what do I need to do to fill that gap, Jesus? What do I need to do? I've, I feel like I've missed something, and you seem to have it. Do you remember what Jesus tells this guy? And put yourself in this guy's shoes. He says, sell your stuff, give the money to the poor, and then follow me with nothing but your life. Which I think is just Jesus' way of saying, get rid of your morality, Get rid of your carefully crafted image and without the safety net of your assets and your savings, live life. In other words, live with reckless abandon. I think Jesus is inviting to, to take a huge risk here. Leave it all and follow me. And you remember what happens with this particular guy. This man, he leaves the encounter sad. He's discouraged. And it says in the text that it's, he's discouraged because he knew in his heart of hearts that he possessed much. And I've heard this reframed by other people that uh, it's as if his possessions have begun to possess him. He was possessed by his things. So he left sad. He left disquieted. He left disturbed in his search for wisdom. Wisdom can be a comfort. It can also be a great discomfort when we encounter the answer. <laughs> This is a profoundly exposing response by Jesus, as Newsom says. It can exp- wisdom can expose us. It can, it can expose us to our incapacity to know or even to want to know what the next thing to do is, where to go in life. We can hear answers we don't want to hear, which brings us to the second thing I want to just learn with you or look at, reflect at with you for a moment, which is, the unattainableness of wisdom. So wisdom is important, and yet it's virtually unattainable. Here's what Job says. Job says it can only be found in God, verse 13. It's, it cannot be found in the land of the living, verse 21. It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing. And then here's the punchline, verse 23. God alone understands the way of it, 
and God alone knows where it dwells. God alone is wise. Ouch. <laughs> so this is saying on one hand that there's true wisdom. There is a source there somewhere. Someone somewhere knows something, everything about the human heart, about the experience of being human, about the times and the seasons, about the complexities of every part of our lives. Someone knows how life works. Someone knows the right path I should take. Someone knows the right choice to make, the right thing to do. Someone, but here's the key. Here's the flip side to it. That someone's not you. That someone's not me. That's not your horoscope. That's not your financial planner. It's not your spouse. It's not even your pastor. Somebody knows the way to wisdom, and that's not you and me. Only God has ultimate wisdom. Only God can see the whole thing. Only God is wise. Did you notice this in verse 24? Just to go a little further, it says that God sees everything. So God understands the way of wisdom, to quote verse 24. God knows her place, for God looks to the end of the earth and surveys everything beneath the heavens. So God has the capacity to see everything at once, and that's why God is wise. That's why God always knows exactly what to do and, and, and everything that's happening. God sees the whole picture, which, by the way, doesn't mean that God has 20-20 vision. It also doesn't mean that God has some super spiritual drone that's up in heaven that's sort of flying over the, you know, you've seen the landscapes, drone footage. God's not, you know, or doesn't have a drone, I don't think, uh, whatever. It just means that God's seeing is not like our seeing, if you catch this. And this is what I love about Job. Here's how he describes God's seeing in verse 23, that God understands the way of wisdom God knows her place, for God looks to the end of the earth, surveys everything beneath the heavens, in order that, in order to weigh the wind and prepare a measure for the waters. So what this is describing to us is not so much a seeing that's a searching. God's not searching heaven to see what's happening, surveying to make sure that, you know, everything is working out the way God intended. What Job is suggesting is that God's seeing is rooted in creation, God's seeing is, is that of a creator or an artist, you might say, um, that sees the way of things so as to create those things. If you were here the first week, you would have heard me uh, mention Stephen Covey, you know, that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People that I've never read, but I've read the cliff notes of, so there's one habit in there. And uh, begin with the end in mind. Do you, if you were here, you can go back. But this is what Covey says about that habit that everything is created twice. And you see how this relates to what I'm saying here. There's a mental or first creation, and then there's always a physical and second creation to everything. So God is our creator. God is the creator of everything. And before we take a breath, as God is our creator, God saw our lives. This is Psalm 130, and it's all about. God saw the earth. God God saw the way things should fit together. And then God created Do you see this? And so God promises as creator then to sustain and then ultimately redeem creation. And and that's that's so key to us, being known by God in this way, a God who sees, a God who creates, a God who sustains, a God who redeems. Um, Carol Newsom, Newsom, who I mentioned moments ago, she writes about this as well in these verses. And she says that God's mode of knowledge is not that of a subject and an object, but one who understands a craft of making. 
God understands the craft of making. It's not because God sees further than we can see that God is wise. It's because God sees differently than we see. God's mode of seeing is not like our seeing. God sees differently than you do and I do. And, and it's in that differentiation between us and God, us created, God as creator, that Newson then goes on to say this, that, that one thus realizes that this poem is in no sense saying that humans have no access to wisdom. I know I already said God alone is wise. Instead, what it's saying is that we will not find it if we look for it as an object, even intellectual pursuit, as good as that is, but only if we ultimately know it. We have to know wisdom. Now, you might ask, how's that different than an intellectual pursuit? Glad you asked. If you know something about the biblical concept of knowledge, you've heard me talk about this probably, you'll know that knowledge, at least in Scripture, is never merely head knowledge or book knowledge. That's not what the knowledge of Scripture, the knowledge of the Bible, the knowledge of God is really about. It's not informational, intellectual. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the things of God, like wisdom, for example, is always, and my mom has always told me to be careful using always and never, but I'm going to do it, always rooted in relationship. To know something of wisdom is to be in relationship to it. Which is why I just love this uh, common English Bible translation that we, we read or saw this read for us earlier and how it personifies wisdom. Did you notice that? It's not done all the time in all the translations, and I'm not sure why. That's probably another conversation for another day. Uh, but remember, people are making these decisions. And so in verse 20, whoever's translated this, it says, but wisdom, where does she come from? Where is the place of understanding? She's hidden from the eyes of all the living, concealed from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death have said, we've heard a report of her, but God understands her way and God knows her place. And just in case you think this is just kind of poetic flourish that some translators made, look at the Proverbs. The Proverbs are constantly personifying wisdom as children, as women, as people. And so if you look at it this way, wisdom as knowledge isn't just about information, it's about relationship. It kind of changes the question Job asks, where can wisdom be found? It's not so much a location as it is a person. There is a way to know wisdom but it's a knowing that can only come through first knowing our creator. There's, the world we live in is the work of someone who created it, created us in delight. And therefore, if you think of it this way, it has beauty, even though it's hidden at times. It has order, even though there is chaos. At times, there's chaos. Um, it has paths, even though we feel like we're aimlessly wandering. It has a pattern, even though that's murky and hidden from us at times. And because of that, only God can ultimately see those things happening, see the whole picture, because God is the creator of those things. Only God understands the ultimate meaning of those things. Only God is wise. And so it's imperative, if that's true, that we begin to not just seek wisdom, as good as that is, but seek God, seek after God, which connects to this last thing I just want to talk through real quick with you. Where can it be found? Wisdom. So I said that God alone is wise. God alone has wisdom. We don't have wisdom. And if the passage ends like that, verse 27, if my sermon ends this way, that's, just, that's a bad sermon. <laughs> Sorry. It'd be a terrible way to end a sermon. I guess I could if we're out of time. So I just left the room. But don't leave yet. Uh, we're not done. The good news is this is not the end. Okay? So there's one more verse. 
And there's a way for us to develop and cultivate wisdom. And that way is simply the fear of the Lord. So did you notice Job says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So at least three times in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, and then here, it says this same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the way to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. So begs the question, do we know what the fear of the Lord is? You might think you have an idea, perhaps. It's, it's complicated. We have a very conflicted relationship with it because when we see it, and um, I've often talked about the opposite of love is fear, not hate, but fear. Man, it seems like we're being called to something that is antithetical to God. If God is love, we're called to fear God. That those two don't pair. Or maybe just be afraid. Like God's a boogeyman. Be afraid. Be very afraid. God's angry. God's out to get you. I mean, how many of you grew up with that in your your formation as children? I noticed some of the older folks. So maybe this is past, but hang with me here. So it's just not true. I just have to say it. It's not true. (laughs) Um, In Psalm 130, verse 4, David says this, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So fear, the fear of God at least, cannot be rooted in punishment or in anger. It can't be. It has to be something else and we've just misunderstood it. So what's that something else? Well, that's something else. Maybe, maybe a better way to understand the fear of God, one that's helped me the last years to understand this command, fear the Lord, is to understand the fear of God as awe of God, A-W-E, or wonder or reverence, or lately... I've been thinking of this in terms of, and through this Ignatian thing I'm going through, stillness before God. Be still and know that I'm God, you know, as the Psalms say. Wisdom is found in stillness. And so here's a good illustration of this. You know, you go to that Van Gogh exhibit. Uh, I didn't go yet, but how many of you guys have gone to that Van Gogh thing? What's it called? Van Gogh? I don't know. But you go into a room and there's Van Gogh everywhere. Okay, good. I've completely destroyed it. But you go there uh, or you go to a museum. Let's try a museum on for size. And you see one of Van Gogh's works up close. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. If you've ever seen one of these or any master artist, you get into the room where that art is and it's just quieter, isn't it? There's sort of a stillness. You know, I once got to see Van Gogh's roses in person when I was younger living on the East Coast at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And I remember seeing that painting. I was standing there, there's the rope, and I was quiet, and I wasn't immediately impressed (laughs) until this older man, he must have been in his 80s at the time, just came up and stood right next to me. He just stood there in quiet and silence right next to me, and I saw him kind of lean in over the rope real close, get close to it and lean out. And I looked over at him, and because I could, I could hear him sniffling, and he's got tears streaming down his cheek. And then he said to me, maybe because he saw me look over, he said, I've been coming here to look at this painting for the last 50 years, and it never ceases to make me weep. And he asked me, do you see it? Do you see the pain in that painting? Do you see the suffering? Do you see the vulnerability? And I had, honestly, I was in my 20s, so I hadn't seen pain, vulnerability, and suffering yet. Um, I hadn't seen it until I leaned in again. And then I saw it for myself, the dark, if you see this painting up close, the brush stroke, the dark brush strokes in some of the petals. 
A few of them are wilting and falling off of the roses um, to the table below. And there's these muted tones in the canvas that aren't the product of just age, but are actually part of Van Gogh's creation. And whenever I see that painting now, there is this stillness in me that happens because of that moment. And why? Because I experienced the beauty of it as a gift of this older man who just showed me how to be careful with its creator, to attend to Van Gogh's story, to honor that story. As you know, Van Gogh had a really hard life. To, to fear, in a, in a good way, I'm not saying fear Van Gogh, but to fear in a healthy way. The fear of God is not a negative command. It is a generative and life-giving and affirming way that we get to be in relationship to God who creates us, sustains us, and promises to redeem us. And therefore, being still before God as creator and as sustainer, as redeemer in our lives and in our world, that's the reason why the Bible says, be still and and know that I'm God. Because it's in that way that you begin to understand these character qualities of God, God alone who is wise. We come into contact with, through stillness, the wisdom of God. We begin to receive God's mind and God's will and God's heart for our lives just by being still. I just think that's, at least from my, my own experience, what the, wis- where the, what the stillness of God is really about, where wisdom can be found. And so just to wrap these things up, I'm going to invite the guys back up here. Um, and you can go grab the kiddos if you want, Silas. What does it mean to be still? Kind of a little take home for you. Um, I mean, what does it mean to be still before God in our suffering and our disappointments or perhaps you're wrestling with some doubts or grief? What does that look like for you? What does it mean to be still enough that you might come into contact and begin to know God in a deep and transforming way? I just, if I can just offer my own experience of this past year with you, um, I think it looks like this. It's not as it used to be, go up to the mountains and sit on some peak and just gaze, though I think that's good. For me, when that's not been possible as much as a parent with young kids and you're driving to school every day and you don't have the luxury or COVID or all these things, it's just looked like confession and honesty with God. At least this has been my experience this last year, beginning to acknowledge the state of my life to God, saying things like, God, I'm in pain right now. I am in trouble. <laughs> I don't understand. I feel, I've said this so many times this year, you guys, I feel profoundly lost. But I believe, God, that you, you understand. I believe you see the whole picture. I have to believe that. I believe you know the way. And so, I'm going to trust you. I don't know. I believe you know. And so, I trust. I cannot wait for this, whatever this is, to be over. I can't wait for a sense of clarity. I, can't, I want so badly, God, for peace in my own life. And so, I just confess, God, I can do nothing. And I accept I confess I can do nothing and I accept the call 
or the invitation, if you will, to be still and know that you are God. That's it. Put that in your own words. That's stillness. That's stillness in your living room, your bathroom, your car, your bedroom, wherever you're going to find yourself. And that's the stillness that Jesus himself, because he finds himself in situations that he did not choose. Yeah, he chose mountaintops at times, but he found himself on the cross. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Do you realize this? He's being ridiculed by those gathered around him, and they're saying to him as he's suffering, as he's dying, if you're the son of God, then bring yourself down from there. And do you remember what Jesus does? He doesn't say a word. He stays right where he is. There's this atmosphere of false accusation and ridicule around Jesus. And he's still. They say, come down, and he stays. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before that, he's praying, he's interceding, he's, he's praying so fervently and passionately, he's praying tears of blood. And he's praying for another way. He's praying for relief from suffering, and he's praying for wisdom. God, There has to be another way for this to go down. Please. But remember what he says. I don't understand, but even so, not my will, your will be done. Be still and know that I am God. I mean, the Son of God, the Messiah, eternally eternally with God, is willing to sit in a position of humility and submission to God the Father and say, even so, God, not my will, your will be done. Jesus is showing us how to fear in God in a healthy way, how to be still despite all the overwhelming circumstances of our lives. He's showing us that he did it and that we can do it too, which is not to minimize what you're experiencing, but, we, but to empower you, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And we have a good and gracious and loving God, and we can be still before that God. So we're just going to respond here. And as we do, I want to take a moment, kind of how Silas began us, in silence with our hearts. Um, and so maybe this is a good opportunity to, uh, yeah, sit back in your chair and just, if you want to, close your eyes for a moment just to focus your hearts. And I just want to invite you to think for a moment. What is something in your life, or maybe in this community, or in our world, where you feel a sense of powerlessness right now, where you feel a sense that I need to surrender. Like, I I have no idea. I don't understand. I don't know what to do next. I don't know the way forward. Maybe a place you feel lost. Just sit in that for a moment. If it helps to have your hands up, to present that to God, then do so. Might this be an opportunity for you to, for, to invite God now who knows the way, who does see, see you, see your life, see your story, 
just to come alongside you and begin guiding you. Let me read these words to us as we close. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in our trouble. And therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and they foam and the mountains quake, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where God dwells. God's within her. She will not fail. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms are falling. And God lifts his voice and the earth melts, the Lord Almighty is with us. And he says, be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations and I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us, friends. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God, we thank you as our children are coming even back to this space that you're with us. You're with every one of us, God. You're with and you're in the earth that we're on, God, that we are inhabiting. This is your creation. And though it's broken in places, God, there is beauty. Help us, God, now in our lives to see the beauty. Help us to see beauty in each other, God. Help us to see beauty in this world we live in this week and respond to that, to lean in, to come close to it, to see you in it, and to be still before it, God. We present our lives to you, God, as an offering. We pray with Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.